Let us pray. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there's none like you. Jesus, we, we love you. And we want to learn to allow that love to, to sweep through our lives. To become our all in all. That our walk with you, that our obedience to you, and that our love for you would be the chief thing in our lives. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to spend a few moments in this particular part of your word. This place where Jesus shares so intimately with his friends. We pray, Lord, again that you'd come to us, that you'd speak powerfully to us, and that we would know Jesus better and love him more deeply as a result. Amen. Definitely would be important to have that passage open before you this evening. We will be working exclusively in those few verses we looked at. Following Jesus, that's what we're about. Uh, that's what we're about as, as Christian people, and it's certainly what we're about here this evening. Jesus has called us. We've responded to his call, and now we want to learn all that we can about his call to follow him and what it means to be his disciples. These Sunday evenings were spending in the company of Jesus and his friends in the upper room. And so far in this wonderful part of John's gospel, we found some wonderful insights, wonderful training for the life of discipleship. As I've been preaching these chapters, I've done something that I often do when I preach an extended passage and that is I've just read them time and again. So John 13 to 17, I've, I don't know how many times, I don't really count, but I just sit and, and read the whole thing through in a block. And I'd encourage you to do that. Take 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how quickly you read. Read it tomorrow morning before you go to work or before you begin your day. And then read it on Tuesday morning before you go to work and begin your day, and then on Wednesday and on Thursday, and keep reading it. Spend time with Jesus, and he will show himself to you wonderfully, I believe, particularly through these, these powerful chapters. I was reading this week, and a, a verse struck me in a new way. I want you to look back just before we go to chapter 15, chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going away, and he says, if you really loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Eugene Peterson's translation in the message adds a little bit of luster here. He says, if you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm on my way to the Father, because the Father is the goal and the purpose of my life. For Jesus, death isn't something to fear. It's something to be welcomed because it brings him 
to the very goal and purpose of his life. Most of you all know by now that I buried my mother last week. And if you've experienced the death of a loved one, you'll probably understand that at that time, a whole host and variety of emotions and feelings come rushing at us. Amidst the grief and the confusion, I can say with my hand on my heart that I felt a a very deep gladness in these last couple of weeks. My mom died within a, a few hours of our evening service a fortnight ago. And when that happened, I was profoundly glad for her, at least in part of my being, because she had gone to be with the Lord. The thing that she has been waiting for, for, not for years, but for decades, that's suddenly become a reality for her. For years, I'd, I'd sensed that my mom was almost a, a reluctant inhabitant of this world, that she'd remind on, on bigger and better things, that when the time would come, she'd be glad to get away. She wants to go and be with the Father, the goal and the purpose of her life. I hope that when my time comes, I'll be able to say that with real conviction. Be glad for me. I'm on my way to the Father, the goal and the purpose of my life. This is what I've been longing for all my life. Friends, let's look together this evening at this opening half of John 15. Probably best to say at the outset, to understand these 17 verses, think of them in two halves. Part one, Jesus begins by using the vine as a metaphor of the life of discipleship. And then in verse two, he he moves from the metaphor into explanation and talks a little bit more about this life. Let's begin very quickly with the metaphor itself. When Jesus says he's the vine, he's tapping into a real rich biblical tradition. The Old Testament often talks about God's people, uh, Israel, uh, as God's vine. And usually the passages talk about Israel pointing out what a privilege it is to to be God's people, to be the vine of God. But notice what Jesus says here. He says he's the true vine. So Jesus is saying here something that he said time and time again throughout the Gospels. I am the new and the real Israel. Anyone who has a part in me now has their part in the people of God. So Jesus is taking this Old Testament picture, Israel's experience of God, and he's using it as a picture of his relationship with the disciples and with his father. I'm the true vine, and my father's the gardener. In verse 2, Jesus gives us an insight into the father's role as gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now again, there's nothing new here. 
God has always tended his vine. Listen to these verses from Isaiah 5. We learn there of God's deep, deep love for his people, for this vine, but also of his willingness to to act in judgment when that's necessary. I'll sing a song for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What could have been done for my vineyard more than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it'll be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. Old Testament or new, the vine belongs to God, and He will tend it perfectly. Some branches, says Jesus, will be cut off. Others, painfully pruned, to increase their fruitfulness. Because Jesus has introduced this this metaphor of the vine, and he's told us that we are branches, the question that we must ask ourselves is how do we live fruitfully as branches in the vine? Jesus tells us in verse 4, if a man remains in me and I in him, He'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the key here in these verses is remaining in Jesus. Now, different verses put this differently. NIV says we're to remain. Others say abide. Some say dwell. And some say we're to make our home in Christ. All of that doesn't really matter. What's absolutely vital to grasp is what Jesus is saying here. It's hopeless to be a Christian without Christ. I don't even think that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying something bigger. I think he's saying it's hopeless to be a human being without Christ. Jesus is the vine. He is the center. He is the only source of true and real life. It's as hopeless to be without Jesus as it is to be a branch lying beside the vine it's been cut from. Friends, one thing I think we'll have to notice here is that Jesus doesn't allow any room for middle ground here. There's no casual, occasional relationship with Jesus. We either abide in him, remain in him, and live fruitful lives, or else we're warned that we will be separated from him that we will live empty and barren lives. Friends, I think there's a warning here for 
Well, for all of us, probably for those who aren't yet in an intimate relationship with Jesus, but I'm thinking particularly of those of us who, who have been walking with the Lord for many years. For many of us, when we, we first found Christ, there was a, a warmth and an ardor and a passion. We were so grateful to Jesus for saving us, for drawing us into this new life with him. But if the truth be told, over the years, we have found a way of, of continuing to call ourselves Christian that doesn't seem to have any intimacy of relationship with Jesus. Friends, this evening, Jesus invites us to remain in him, to abide in him, dwell in him, make our homes in him, to make Jesus once more the fundamental reality of our lives. If a man or a woman remains in me and I in him, they will bear much fruit. I want you to notice just very quickly the last phrase in verse 5. In contrast to those who live in him, those who le- whose lives are eternally productive, Jesus says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's not just swallow these words too quickly this evening. I want to think about them for a moment. I think if we're entirely honest, we'll probably admit that it's hard to take these words seriously. All around us, we see people who seem to do much, and they're doing it apart from Jesus. Our workplaces and our neighborhoods are full of atheists, people who certainly don't believe in Jesus, and they can do some wonderful things. They can be good employers. They can tell the truth. They can even visit sick people. They can do all those things, as I've said, without any reference to Jesus. In the church, on reflection, I I think it's, it's common, well, it's possible, but I think it's also common to run our programs, to develop our strategies, and to build our buildings without any real reference to Jesus, without any real desire to seek first his kingdom. And a lot of those things can appear very good. Inside of the church, outside of the church, lots of people are doing lots of things without any real reference to Jesus. And they look great. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, I don't think Jesus means us to despise good deeds, well-intended done by all sorts of different people. But good deeds well done fall far short of what Jesus wants for his disciples. Look at verse 8. When we remain in Christ and serve him, Jesus says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. We are to do those good deeds We're to do them well, but we're to do them in Christ in a way that makes it patently obvious to all those around us that we do these things out of our love for and our commitment to Jesus. 
Friends, I, I think this is where it gets really exciting. If we remain in Christ, everything that we do, some small things, some huge things, but everything that we do has the potential to reach a person who is far from Jesus and to bring them a small step or a large step closer to knowing Jesus. The promise here is that this will be to my Father's glory when we are fruitful, showing ourselves to be Jesus' disciples. I think it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Folks, we've said that the key to a fruitful life of discipleship is to remain in Christ. We've said that without that intimate relationship with Jesus, we can't do anything worthwhile in the kingdom of God. How do we go about this? How do we remain in Christ? Look, look quickly at verse 9. Jesus begins here to develop his teaching. The invitation to remain in him is framed as an invitation to remain in his love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. We need to stop here again for a second because this, this is just incredible. This, this part of John's gospel, I, I think, is one of the densest parts of God's Word that I've ever read. There are sentences in here which, as we read them, should have the effect of an atomic bomb going off beside us. They're incredible. Do you see what Jesus says there? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. The eternal love of God for His only Son. That love and communion, that fellowship in the Trinity, somehow that same love is passed on to us as Jesus loves us. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Friends, I'm not even going to begin to try and understand what Jesus is saying here. This is, this is where the theologians would, would kill this for us. But just let's hear this. Somehow in, in, the, in the measure and in the kind of love that the Father has for the Son, we are loved by Jesus. I don't know if you understand that or if you know that. I suspect that none of us do. I think it's one of the hardest things in our lives to understand how much God loves us. The kids sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. If they know it, they're blessed. I'm not sure if we know it. Jesus loves me. This I know. We can believe it because he's told us here. Let's take him at his word. Jesus invites us to remain in his love and he tells us how to do that in verse 10. Look at verse 10. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed the Father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus says, you know, the way I stay in the Father's love is by doing 
the things that I know he wants me to do. If you want to remain in my love, do the things that you know I want you to do. Friends, I think we need to talk on almost exactly the same terms as we did two weeks ago. What does it mean in this context to obey Jesus' commands? I suggested to you a couple of weeks ago when we were last thinking about this, that to obey Jesus' commands has nothing to do with seeking out a long list of rules and putting our minds to trying to keep them. That seems to me to be exactly the thing that Jesus challenged in the Pharisees right throughout his public ministry. And if you read the Gospels, you'll find nowhere Jesus presenting a list of these are the things you should do if you want to remain in my love. Whenever Jesus encouraged his disciples in the upper room that night, whenever he told them that to obey him was to remain in his love, I think he was saying, in effect, something like this. You men know me. You've been with me now for three years. You've watched me as I've healed people. You've watched me as I've challenged hypocrisy in religious leaders. You've heard me as I've preached. You've asked me questions about what I've taught. You've seen all of this. And now if you really love me, you will be convinced by that life that I've lived out before you. If you really love me, you'll want to live that life because you'll be convinced that that's the best life that there is. Friends, I think that's what it means to love Jesus and because we love him to obey his commands. Friends, I think Jesus is looking for people who will obey him. Not because they're the kind of people who love rules and who love to obey rules, but because they've simply become convinced that the life Jesus lived and the life he's called us to is the only life worth living. If you love me, you'll obey my commands and you'll remain in my love. Friends, we're nearly finished because I'm going to leave out a few verses this evening from 11 to 15. And we'll pick them up in a fortnight's time when we come back to this part of John's gospel. I want to pick up one last aspect of this passage. Look at the second part of verse 16. Jesus is talking to these disciples, these, these men whom he's invited to, to enter into his very life, to remain in him, love him, and obey him. And this is what he says. The Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now that seems like an incredible promise. And it's not the first time that Jesus has made the promise in this discussion with his disciples. Look back to chapter 14, verse 13. I'll do whatever you ask in my name. Look at chapter 16, verse 23. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete.
Friends, this is, this is incredible, and it's, it's very important that, that we spend a moment on this before we finish this evening. Jesus is promising his disciples that God will give us whatever we ask in his name. What does he mean? What does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? One time after I'd finished a service, I received a phone call from a person who'd been in the congregation on that occasion. After a a very short encouragement at the start of the phone call, this person got to the, the real purpose of their call. Christoph, I've noticed that some of your prayers end rather abruptly. You don't end all your prayers with the phrase, in Jesus' name. Now, God's word encourages us to present our prayers in the name of Jesus, and that if we do so, that God will hear and answer those prayers. I always do so when I'm involved in public prayer. I was caught on the hop a wee bit. It wasn't the kind of thing that... I I told the caller that as far as I know, I end some of my prayers with that particular phrase and and others of them I don't. Um, And I said I didn't feel bound to use that phrase on every occasion. And soon our phone call ended. Whenever I hung up, I got a moment to think about it. Because it, it drives us to passages like this. What does it mean when Jesus says that we should pray in Jesus' name. Well, to me, it took only a moment's reflection to realize that praying in Jesus' name has absolutely nothing to do with tagging on a phrase at the end of our prayer. In fact, as I reflected on it, it struck me that it's quite possible to pray a prayer, add that phrase on the end, and for the prayer to have absolutely nothing to do with the character and the will of Jesus. Friends, I think praying in Jesus' name is just an extension of what we've been talking about a moment ago, of loving Jesus, obeying his commands. Learning to pray in the name of Jesus means learning to pray the prayers that Jesus would pray for us, for our friends, for our church. And friends, I think if I learned truly to pray in the name of Jesus, I'd pray quite differently. And I suspect that some of the prayer in our church prayer meeting would be quite different if we prayed in the name of Jesus. I think praying in the name of Jesus might mean that we would stop praying that things would get better that we would be wealthier and healthier and more powerful and have more possessions, whatever way we disguise that in our pious prayers, I think we'd stop praying along those lines. And we'd begin to pray the kind of prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does Jesus pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying in Jesus' name means getting to know Jesus. 
getting to know his will and his heart for this world, and then praying that back to him. Friends, I think praying in the name of Jesus is going to take a lot more than tagging a phrase on at the end of our prayers. But there's a wonderful world here of looking into God's word, spending time with God, getting to know him, and then praying his very own will back to him. Friends, let's, let's do that just now. Let's pray. Father God, we would love to pray in the name of Jesus because we know that you will hear and answer those prayers. Tonight, we very simply pray those things that you've taught us in your word this evening. Lord, we long to be fruitful and productive branches in the vine. Lord, we long to remain in Jesus. Lord, where that connection with Jesus has weakened, where it's failing, we pray that you would restore us, that we would soon once more be flourishing and thriving, that the sap of your spirit would be flowing once more in our lives. Lord, we want to do our part in this. We know that to remain in the love of Jesus, we, we must obey. Lord, make us people whose dearest desires are to know your will and to live it. Lord, make that the goal and purpose of our lives. Lord, we do long to remain in you, to be fruitful and productive branches in the vine. We pray this because we know we can do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.